everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, today we're going to talk about another book. The book is The Cultural Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move to a Lot Like the Ones They Left. And obviously, to discuss that with me, we have the author, Gareth Jones. Gareth is a macroeconomist at George Mason University. His academic research spans monetary economics, experimental game theory, behavioral macroeconomics, and public choice. Gareth, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Garrett, I have a bit of a tradition. Every time we do a book podcast, uh, and I've done a few on this one, I've done more than I think 80 now. I've covered 80 books as of now on the podcast. So I, I, I do this. I always ask the author, why did they decide to write the book? What, what was the reason? that made them decide, okay, I'm going to do this topic. Because in your case, you, you started off uh, with two books behind this, right? And you are, it's almost like a trilogy, right? If I was to get it right. Yes. Yes. So this is the third book in what I call my Singapore trilogy. But I think Singapore has important lessons uh, that the rest of the world can learn from for how to make a great country almost from scratch. And uh, this particular book came to me because, and it became sort of my burden to write it, because I knew there was all this academic literature showing how uh, that the history of peoples matters more than the history of places, that basically where your nation's ancestors came from seems to be a better predictor of a lot of outcomes um, than sort of raw geographic measures alone. And uh, this, these insights just hadn't made it out side of uh, the you know, rarefied world of academia and our technical journals and hadn't made it out into the public discourse. So there was instead this sort of assimilation myth. People kind of believe that after two or three generations, migrants just sort of adopt whatever values are going on in their home countries. And I thought that uh, refuting that myth and showing that mainstream academics don't believe in it was an important thing to, to sort of bring to bring to folks. All right. So if I was to ask you, but at what point does one objectively decide a person has assimilated properly in a society if you don't mind me asking that because i don't get it like is there an assimilation scale or something of that sort that's a great question right so i mean there's a there's obviously a subjective element to this right like what counts as enough assimilation from the point of view of uh, say the median voter in your country um i'm sure that in most cases people end up migrants to the us or western europe where there's been a lot of studies um, end up assimilating to the language and a lot of the uh, dress behaviors and, and food behaviors, food choices of uh, people in the new country, right? That probably happens. But what I'm really interested in as an economist is traits like uh, frugality, the proper role of government, um, the role of women in public life. Um, these are questions where we it's important to know whether people assimilate within a few generations, um, partly because I care about uh, how those folks will um, whether they'll be, well, will I have frugal neighbors who will help build up the capital stock of my country? But I'm also interested in what values people are going to import into the voting booth, because especially in democracies, governments are really responsive to the preferences of voters. And uh, so I don't have any one single scale for assimilation. I mean, people can pick their own measures. I'm interested and my expertise takes me uh, to the question of um, is there assimilation on the values that matter for long run national prosperity? and for long-run, high-quality political institutions. 
All right. So in that, again, uh, a follow-up that somebody would come and say, and, and I remember because you have given a detailed uh, example of Argentina, and I would request you to share the yeah. Argentinian example is because, again, we would run into, uh, full disclosure, I am not someone like that, but I'm just trying to think like someone who would sure. come from, a, from a, let's say, a pro-socialist perspective is what I'm thinking like. I'm trying to. For, I, I am not. I, I lean libertarian personally, and I believe in market economics personally. but. Uh, so if somebody would say, like, again, even in the realm of, uh, let's say, material prosperity, which is directly related to monetary prosperity and parameters that flow down from there. Now, how does one, like, a socialist might say, but socialism is a better idea in that sense. And that's why I wanted you to narrate the Argentinian story. In the book. Yeah, so... Um... I wanted to sort of kick off my book with um, evidence from that's not from economists. And so what I did is I started reading up on the history of Argentina. And our economists all know that Argentina was once one of the richest countries in the world, say in the late, very late 1800s, and on a per capita basis. And the prosperity was kind of widely shared by the standards of the day. I wouldn't say it was perfect, but... Um, and uh, then the political leaders of Argentina decided that uh, they should bring in migrants to help grow the economy. They, they seemed, seemed like there was a shortage of high quality labor. So why not use migration as a way to increase the labor supply? And uh, according to normal historians, like in the Penguin History of Latin America, they report that uh, the migrants on average uh, brought, were importing political ideas that hadn't really existed in the country before. At that time, it was anarchism and socialism, um, a lot of direct action. People were into sort of setting off bombs, things like that, right? That's the, that was the sort of uh, forms of political activism that were unfortunately common back then. And that kicked off a set of changes in Argentine politics that moved the, the economy to the left. Um, ultimately, the leader who embodied a lot of this most famously is Perón, right? And Perón was this weird fusion, a little bit like Trump, one might say, a fusion of a lot of left-wing ideas and a lot of right-wing ideas. His political coalition was its own thing, uh, but he was the fruit of a, a seed that had been planted, apparently, by uh, anarchist, socialist migrants who came and became very active in politics in Argentina. So Argentine politics, according to normal historians, was dramatically shaped by migration and by migrants who brought political attitudes that hadn't been part of the debate. So I'd say if somebody's a socialist and they're thinking, how can I get uh, more socialism in my country? One way to do it would be to encourage migration by active socialists uh, into your country. Uh, within a generation or two, you'll probably get some more socialist activists. It might help your movement. That's the interesting bit, right? That. Like, I'll give you an example of the case of India. Now, in the case of India, India, in terms of actual immigration coming into it from, I, I, I would, uh, maybe you have Bangladesh, Burma, Bhutan, and all these areas. We might have immigration from those areas, but um, there's not real, no real immigration outside of the Asian uh, continent that comes into India. But India has had, if not genetic inflow in that sense, uh, in the last hundred years, India has had a major mimetic inflow of socialism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, communist ideas. So uh, do these studies actually factor in things like, let's say we live, and what is interesting in the case of India is India uh, today is way more liberal and market oriented after 1990s than it, it was in its early years. 
Now, there was no real, you know, immigration coming into India. It was just Indian leaders fascinated by socialism and Marxism and stuff like that. So in terms of the damage to the economy, how much of uh, immigration do, do we need? Uh, this is a great question. I mean, let me let me turn to the something you mentioned about a minute ago, which is this question of mimetic inflow versus human inflow, right? Some some ideas just get spread over the internet now, right? That's what we say now. Um, a few decades ago, people would have said, oh, uh, these ideas are being spread around the world by think tanks from the left or the right um, to try to spread ideas in, from one country to the next. And so, um, you know, my, my method isn't really devoted, isn't really, you know, uh, built to tell you uh, in a percentage terms uh, how much of the institutional change in this country came from idea inflow over, say, social media versus people bringing in ideas personally and then voting for them in the voting booth. Uh, my goal here is to tell people that the second channel is important. The people channel matters, right? Uh, as they say in politics in Washington, they say personnel is policy, right? Uh, when you decide who you're going to hire in your administration, their values, their goals end up shaping what the government can end up doing. Uh, and uh, that can have great effects in a lot of cases, right? So... Um, if I wanted to help India uh, become a more prosperous country uh, over the next few decades, I'd say like, wow, if, if you could find a way to, if, if the Indian government could find a way to encourage uh, neoliberal activists to uh, move in, libertarian activists, free market reformers uh, to move in and uh, build lives in India, that would probably have long run effects if it were, say, two, three, five percent of the population. Well, I hope that happens. <laughs> yeah, one can hope, right? I yeah, I, I hope that happens. But that, that's the whole idea, because the un, again, a socialist might say, well, the underlying assumption um, that Garrett makes over here is that socialism is better than capitalism. No, but I, I mean, I don't know if that's a, it's not so much an assumption. It's just like looking around at the world. And I mean, when I talk about social and I'm, we're talking about socialism a little informally here, right? I mean, I get uh, it. Northern European welfare states to many people are socialism, but to many academic economists, Northern European welfare states are nearly the epitome of capitalism, right? If you can have capitalism with a large social safety net that ensures that the poor don't suffer, um, that's, that's a lot of capitalism, but it accomplishes many of the goals of socialism, right? So um, if we're talking about socialism in terms of government control of industry and regulating competition, um, disfavoring large firms, um, then that kind of socialism has a pretty bad track record. And I think there's going to be a wide consensus among economists that that does not build widely shared prosperity. And speaking from personal experience, I always uh, tell this to a, my friends in America. I visit America often. I go to go there. And, you know, there's this fascination with socialism in America. And I was like, none of you have lived it. We yeah. did. <laughs> Yes, yeah. it's uh, it's amazing how these uh, the romance of socialism is just so powerful, right? My colleague Dan Klein has uh, written about this that there's something um, there's something romantic about socialism that uh, sort of probably draws on something like our hunter gatherer ancestor past, where our team was all in this together and we could understand the scope of our economic process, and that has just some kind of pull to people who really should know better. Um, it's, it's unfortunate to see the lure of um, central planning uh, when, when we all look at our iPhones, when we all look at our smartphones and we think there's no one company in the world I would trust with that. The only reason that stuff works is because there's 
dozens of companies competing to make every single piece inside of this phone. Yep. Now, uh, I want you to talk about this. So what is the spaghetti theory of cultural change? Yes, yeah, the idea that we meet in the middle. Um, a lot of There's a lot of memes out there that say that migrants assimilate to their new country. And I think uh, migration is a two-way street. And spaghetti is an example of this. So Italian-Americans came to America. And um, before they got to the United States, we ate a lot less spaghetti. We ate a lot less Italian food. And um, since Italians came to America, even though Italians are only about 6% of the population, they're 12% of the restaurants, right? So if you were a naive statistician doing a statistical analysis of whether Italian Americans had assimilated to America, you'd say, well, let's look at the food. You know, um, both Italian Americans and other Americans are eating burgers, both Italian Americans and other Americans are eating pizza, both Italian Americans and other Americans are eating spaghetti. Looks like the Italians assimilated, but really part of what happened is that the Italian Americans assimilated us, right? I'm glad to eat pizza. I'm glad to go to Italian run Italian restaurants. And um, assimilation is a two-way street. It's a meeting in the middle. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a very specific quote in your book where, where you talk about a, a study. I think it was um, Alberto Alessina. Uh, Albert, and, yeah, just uh, passed away at Harvard University. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, you talk about the World Values Survey, where there mm -hmm. are six specific questions. And... Now, I'm just reading an excerpt of that. Uh, the, yeah. uh, you say the author sum it up, quote, all the different measures of family values have significant effect on wages, but it might not be what you had expected. Second generation immigrants coming from fam familistic countries, that is countries with stronger family values, have lower wages as predicted by our model. Stronger family values predict poorer families. The effect of home country culture on migrant wages is modest but real. Now, I was just trying to think about this from an Indians who have migrated into the United States of America perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know they're 1% of the population, approximately 1.2% 1, 1 of the population of the United States, people from India. But uh, but I was just trying to think, uh, overall, when it comes to the family value structure, I think Indians would score high on those mm -hmm. matrices. Personally, they do carry family values, but uh, aren't they like the richest too over there? In the, you know, or they're just the exception, not the norm? They are an ex the Indian Americans and Indian migration more generally is an incredible exception to just about every rule we have uh, in the study of migration, right? So I was just looking at a paper that... Um, Someone mentioned to me on Twitter that I hadn't seen in years, in quite a while. And uh, for instance, to give a more concrete example, um, in most countries, there's a strong correlation between the average test scores like the PISA or the TIMS, uh, these international standardized math science reading scores. Uh, there's typically a pretty strong correlation between the home country average of those values and the average values of migrants from those countries who come to, say, the U.S., right? So basically, Chinese people in China perform quite well on standardized tests. Chinese Americans perform quite well on standardized tests. You know, um, Italian Americans are going to score a little bit lower on average. Italians are a little bit lower in Italy. That correlation kind of holds up. India is a huge exception to that, right? Um, as as you probably know, uh, perhaps better than I, um, India had quite poor performance on its PISA scores uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that fits a pattern of other lower, low average standardized scores in India. There's a lot of reasons for that. And still, some are still mysterious. But in any case, the scores on average are lower. Yet Indian American 
standardized test scores are incredibly high. So there's something about Indian Americans that probably at least half selection, right? Just the the folks who come to the United States um, from India uh, seem to have their parents are probably the folk, kind of folks who were scoring far above average in India. And then when they come to America and raise children there, their children perform well over a standard deviation higher than one would have expected just from India's lower average scores. So there's some kind of selection going on in Indian American immigration, and that helps um, the United States enormously, right? It, it's part of what makes Indian American... America is very fortunate to really be a great a great place for immigrants to go to. And so therefore, we're able to just reap these incredible harvests from the benefits of migration. But then uh, what, what, what is your take on the entire American immigration system as such? Do you think it's fine-tuned to sustain? Uh, the, so I'll give you an example. Uh, I was looking at the figures of uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I have understood is that there is so much backlog in America when it comes to post-COVID and just for yeah, yeah. whatever reason, America just has seems to have a very weird, messed up sort of an immigration system where while Canada has a very well-oiled system where they have a point system, just like Australia, New Zealand. And, and I think most uh, developed countries in, uh, in the Western world do tend to have the system where America is the outlier. Do you think America runs the risk of uh, losing the competitive advantage now? Because I, I was reading Canada's plan of, I think in, in another three years, they're going to get 1.5 million if i remember uh skilled workers from the from the world and um, they have a very robust system where they know who's coming in and who's not going to come in but uh how then what what happens in the future to america it's, i know it's nothing to do with the book but i just wanted to ask. Uh, so even before this this book um even and apart from the message of the culture transplant um i i think i agree with a lot of my fellow economists that uh uh, a points-based system, of uh, an immigration system that's focused mostly on bringing in folks with high skills, maybe focused on STEM degrees in particular uh, as an easy filter. Um, that's that's probably the best path for uh, the rich countries if they want to improve uh, their their the quality of the private sector, and also in order to improve the uh, quality of um, voter values, right? Uh, folks who are more educated are more likely to be socially tolerant. They're more likely to support socially tolerant policies. On average, they're more likely to uh, support market-oriented policies. So they'll be importing values into the voting booth that are what I'd call cosmopolitan and liberal. On average, right? There's always weird exceptions. Um, so yeah, the U.S. Um, hasn't followed the rule of Australia, Canada, Singapore, um, some countries in Western Europe with these skills-based migration policies. And that's, uh, pro- that's likely to cost us other things equal um, in the future. Um, it's, I think, part of the reason why it won't change very much and why, e- why basically Joe Biden has kept most of Donald Trump's policies is because politicians have figured out that um, mass migration like mass lower skilled migration on average is just not a political winner and even though the democratic party publicly says they they welcome um lower skilled migration uh they don't want to enact policies consistent with that because they really don't want to face the wrath of the voters so basically trumpism is living beyond trump and was trumpism living before trump too yeah i mean you could say yes right because uh uh, the fact that George W. Bush, who I think quite sincerely 
wanted to come wanted to yeah. reform the immigration system and include a mass amnesty um for pre people who had come in previously um the fact that he couldn't get that through was a sign right that the that was one of these signals that the republican party was out of touch with its own voters and i think part of what uh, the democrats have learned since then is even is that large portions of their own party isn't cra aren't crazy about that either and um if they want to win elections um it's part of you know some people say that america is a kludgeocracy and a kludge is basically a mediocre workaround to a problem um in the united states unfortunately not solving uh not coming up with a long-term immigration solution is apparently our immigration solution yeah that that's very interesting because uh now this is something because you also tweeted about this i i i cannot believe that it's even discussed in america uh open borders uh, uh, uh -huh. i always like to clarify that i am not for open borders mm -hmm. no matter where in the world uh, there has to be a border you have to have some sort of a vetting system uh i know these uh, you know i call this uh, fluffy philosophy uh, uh that uh, you know oh all human beings are equal yeah you are but uh, it still doesn't mean you have an open border but you actually hear mainstream american politicians basically play footsie with this whole open borders idea mm -hmm. and it's so unfortunate because what they don't realize is the kind of message they give to poor people across the world because they listen to those clips you know you have whatsapp you have these 30 second 60 second 2 minute clips that percolate down the world and then you rise the hopes of those people and then those people end up making the large journey coming to those places but is there any way like i so uh, like i came across uh, uh, your work through some book recommendations, but I also heard you on Razib Khan's podcast. Uh, shout out to uh, our comments. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic guy. But Razib had very interesting discussions on immigration before that, too, on his Substack. One was uh, from a very libertarian perspective, one was from a very left wing perspective, one was very anti immigration, one was very pro immigration. But my whole point is that how does one how does one talk to a person in a very rational way? about open borders as a subject without getting uh because i don't like the whole sarcasm around it but i i get shocked when i actually listen to open border as an or as an argument in america mm -hmm. well i mean one of the better cases for open borders uh if you want to give arguments for it is that for a long time the united states did have an open border right um for uh, the first century or so of its history the united anybody who wanted to come to the united states could show up um certainly uh there would have been certainly that couldn't have been literally true in every case, but on but in general, the United States nominally and more or less in practice had an open border. Uh, of course, in a world of much cheaper transportation, where it's much easier to just fly to America, that might not be the same system, right? Like, but uh, that's one argument is the U.S. had it for a long time. Second, uh, the United States is fifty separate states, and we all have open borders between them. Um, literally everyone in California could legally move to Nevada tomorrow. They could move to Las Vegas, which is in a different state and just decide to move there. So if the United States had had closed borders between its 50 states, and then people were debating online, whether we should have open borders within the 50 states, you can imagine people saying, what if everybody, what if everybody moves from California to Las Vegas tomorrow? Wouldn't that be a horror? And the answer is like, you don't have to worry about that, right? On the list of things to worry about, that is not the thing you worry about. So um, 
So some there's some very good points that open borders uh, activists make, and they uh, reflect the fact that we're sometimes afraid of the unknown. And so when we're afraid of the unknown, we should look at things that are kind of like the policy we're proposing. And, you know, we have open borders between the 50 U.S. states. I presume there is something close to open borders between the states of India. Um, and yet that that works out OK somehow. Um, so that's one of the better arguments for it. Uh, the uh, of course, when you're talking about a world of much vaster income inequality than exists within the U.S., right, and opening the border to uh, everyone in the world uh, from the U.S., that is a much that is a much different proposition, right? Um, this could be a case where I, just as a purely hypothetical, right, if every country in the world simultaneously agreed to open all their borders, like that would actually reduce the cost of any one country doing it, right? This could be a sort of constitutional problem. I'm not in favor of that at all. Um, I do think that uh, the fears of migration are overstated, that uh, the, even the kinds of I, things that I'm talking about in my books are more about the long run. Um, they're not about, uh, I'm, very, I'm not concerned very much that mass migration from low-skilled countries uh, hurts the wages of domestic workers. I think that the evidence for that is kind of weak. You can find little spots here and there, but it's that's not the driving force. To me, the driving question should be institutional quality. And I think when it comes to governance, personnel is policy. And in a democracy, the citizens are the personnel. So it's interesting. So uh, are you familiar with Eric Weinstein's uh, uh, opposition to uh, immigration of high-skilled workers and how it damages the the bottom line of, uh, I think it was skilled immigrants. How, are you aware of that? I, I've heard this around. I don't know his particular argument for it. I mean, maybe I've seen a tweet or two. Um, it, you know, it's it's weird. Whenever we people check pretty hard or whenever I've looked at people who are doing anything like a rigorous study of this, um, it just doesn't seem to hold up that much, right? So, I mean, maybe there's a weird tech exception to the general rule. But if it's not showing up with low-skilled migrants um, supposedly flooding Cuba during after the Mariel boatlift, um, you know this is this is a case, a well-studied case where Mike, where uh, Fidel Castro allowed anybody to leave Cuba and go to Miami if they wanted, and you would expect that to be a huge increase in labor supply that really pushed down wages. And economists have checked a bunch of times, and you know, maybe some people find a small effect, mostly people find no effect. These, if these huge changes aren't doing it in a place where it really ought to be able to, where you really ought to be able to push down wages, it seems as though, um, you know, you know, in econ 101, we're taught that labor demand curves slope down. But when you get to more advanced econ, you're like, oh, that was kind of like a little fairy tale we tell the students. And when the economy is sophisticated at all, labor demand curves are kind of like this, kind of horizontal. And the reason why is because capital wants to follow the workers, right? Capital loves to exploit workers, and the only way you can exploit a worker is by hiring them. Yeah. So this is, I think, that simple theory argument, which is a little more advanced than we usually put in our principles classes, shows up in all our intermediate advanced stuff. We just, for some reason, we don't want to teach the undergrads that. We don't want to teach the freshmen the simple stuff. And that's a pretty powerful idea, right? Capital chases unemployed workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does. It does. Now, I'll tell you something where I was like, oh, damn, this is so much like Indians in America. <laughs> I'll tell you which which bit of your book was that. So you say, as a general rule, if your nation's immigrants are importing stronger family values into your culture, 
they and their descendants are also importing greater demand for government intervention in the job market now that is such a typical indian american trait that i observed in and 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 i have family over there and now, I, this that is something is i don't know about so i'd like to hear you tell me about this tell me an anecdote oh, this is, that'd be great oh this is so indian this is so indian they love government intervention in many areas and now it's very interesting indians on average uh, everybody knows uh, indian voting patterns although they have changed in the last 10 years indians mm-hmm. have always by and large voted for the american left overwhelmingly in fact one of the communities that has the highest voting patterns for the democrats over the years are indian americans uh, mm-hmm. i mean it's i'm not making this up the data is publicly available the, only in the past few years the indian american voting attitudes have slightly changed uh, there is a certain generation by the way this is the generation that has these are first generation indians who have migrated to america and have just started you know getting american passports and i think if you if you look at it even more granularly you'll see the republican uh, base more in the ones from india going to america in the last say 20 30 years if i was going by my experience but yes second generation indians are actually very much for government gener- intervention i i see this all the time i i just came back i was there in america and canada for five months and i would you know i mean my wife is uh, someone who would qualify as a second generation i and i see those traits in her too <laughs> it, it is a lot more about government intervention and i find it fascinating and i i always ask these kids and and ask them i was like you do realize this country is built on market economics and they're like no but we like healthcare and and i always get these specific interventions and uh, i i don't know how far uh, because there has to be a survey there but yeah when i read this bit from your book i was like oh this is so much uh, this is so accurate on on the indian community but i don't know uh, i could be wrong uh, and i have a lot of indians from america who follow me who would be like no i'm not like that but yeah, yeah. in my general observation over there i did follow this trend uh, the that that was pretty much there so i don't know if that helps or not well the, there is this general rule that uh the first generation migrants are really different from the second generation i mean the the and the and that's because the first generation is self selected right they came to america because they're like i love this place if a, if somebody from india goes to france you think that's going to be probably someone who on average likes french culture more than the typical person right more interested in learning french more interested in the french way of life um so the first center, the first generation migrants are going to be in terms of values, attitudes, views toward government really different from the second generation. So the second generation is reverting to the mean, uh but the mean they're reverting to is a mix, loosely speaking, a 50-50 mix of the attitudes in their home in their grandparents' country and the attitudes in their new country. So the first generation exceptional, we this is why like first generation immigrants uh don't give us a proper perspective of the long run effects of immigration the first generation generally like awesome on so many measures and outliers on many measures second generation reversion to the mean and part of that is referring to the mean back home and that seems another, to be what you're describing there yeah and another thing that i find very interesting about uh the indian community overall is i think they are very good at assimilating so uh, I don't know why they did not assimilate to the market economics uh, sentiment in in the I'm not saying they're socialists mm-hmm. but all I'm saying is that they're not as free market uh, oriented as I I am maybe living oh, in India the first generation Indian American migrant 
Oh yeah, that yeah, that's what yeah, I that's found really very cool. interesting. Right. Yeah, so but I, I guess it's, is it? Yeah. So, but uh, could you explain this? Is it because of let's say the shift in the American academia too, which has become more uh, open to let's say let's say ideas opposed to free market economics, and so the second generation, which is just assimilating more, is assimilating to that challenge now. I don't think so. Um, you know, a lot of there are a lot of folks who are uh, loosely on the right, perhaps like I am, who think that academia is basically, you know, conveying left wing values, preaching that to the youth and converting them. Um, but as many left wing professors point out, I can't even get my students to read the assigned readings. How can I convert them to Marxism? Right. Um, so there's something to that. Right. And uh, more formal statistical work finds that basically the one area where uh, going to American universities probably actually changes your values on the social tolerance stuff. It doesn't seem to change your views on markets. So the whatever change, uh, whatever support there is for government regulation on average is probably not coming from university indoctrination. The general rule is uh, if colleges change you, it kind of makes you more socially tolerant, gives you a little more cosmopolitan values, but not changing your views on markets much one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So now, the one thing that I found the most interesting bit in the book was on the bit on diversity. You explained which diversity is good and which diversity is. Uh, so you you did, did differentiate between uh, skills diversity, what you call, if I remember yeah. correctly, in your book, and and uh, uh, the other loose word I would call diversity based on characteristics like ethnic diversity or something of that sort, right? Yeah, ethnic diversity is a good catch-all for all that. So ethnic diversity versus skills diversity would be two big bins you can put diversity research into. Yeah. And it looks like on average from, I, I try to focus on uh, businesses um, uh, trying to make the best of a diverse population, right? Because businesses have a strong financial incentive to try to make it work, right? So if our diversity is our strength, which is a meme you hear a lot online, uh, businesses should be able to make use of that strength. They have every financial incentive to do it. And yet uh, a repeated finding of the business literature is the phrase they use is that diversity is a double-edged sword. They're not saying our diversity is our strength. Uh, there is, they find muddled evidence, some pluses, some minuses. And where you really can find a, a cleaner break between pluses and minuses is that skills diversity is a plus, right? If you're having people work on a team and they're building a new piece of software, you probably want some people who are good at programming and some people who are good at hardware and some people who are good at user interfaces, right? You want um, you want a mixture of skills on the team, even though there's going to be some friction. Um, ethnic diversity um, is either zero or a negative. It kind of depends on the researcher who's and the time of the research. People will be kicking this around a long time. And so ethnic diversity is often in, in business settings associated with a little bit more conflict, uh, with not higher productivity, and people kind of feeling a little worse. So these are just correlations from a lot of different kinds of studies. And when we look at the broad cross-country research, um, there's some recent research showing that um, when ethnic diversity turns into a weakness at the cross-country level or at the national level, it's when ethnic differences are correlated with values differences, right? So values differences are probably the more important driver of real ethnic conflict, right? If we, well, the more important driver of, of human conflict, right? If we think about religious, religious battles within Europe, uh, or within India, presumably, right? We're looking at, at uh, situations where physical characteristics aren't how people are dividing up the tribe, but they still manage to kill a lot of people over uh, religious diversity, right? That's it. 
century plus of European history over that. Uh, but when values are correlated with ethnic differences, when people can say, oh, you speak a different way, I'm pretty sure on average you believe a different way too. That uses the terrible human trait of looking of stereotyping and turns that into a source of social conflict, right? So it's when ethnic diversity and values are correlated. That's when it, that's when nations seem to pay a price. But then when, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit more about this skills, uh, skills diversity. Like mm -hmm. when we talk about, again, this is directly linked to what I call a proper immigration policy, which is something uh, I, 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 I always talk about the Canadian example is because I think, don't you think then in that sense, the Canadians have it right because they are looking for uh, skills diversity in that sense, right? In their immigration, while um, they might have a few quotas about uh, we, we want X number of people from country A, Y number of people from country B. But uh, like, for example, like they have economic and family, right? Uh, so they have federal high skill, federal economic public policies, federal business. Uh, they have provincial nominees and they have a range of uh, employee uh, people whom they want to get. So so would that that kind of immigration policy classify more as a skills diversity program that that Canada has? Well, if the, if Canada is increasing immigration of skills they currently don't have much of, then it would be increasing skills diversity. I would say that uh, the better way to sum it up or the faster way to sum it up is that they're just bringing in people with higher average skills, right? So they're not interested in diversity. There's no particular, uh, but there are benefits to being interested in skills diversity per se, but the much bigger effect is just bringing in people with more skills. One way to increase skills diversity is to have people with high and low skills, right? To speak a little pejoratively. Uh, but bringing in more folks with higher skills on average is probably going to have benefits both for firms, um, for economic innovation, and for the quality of governance a few decades later. So higher skills has, has a payoff that skills diversity per se does not have. So if you had to say which one to focus on, just higher skills. Got it. So, so I guess in that sense, yeah. So from what I've understood in the Canadian immigration policy is that they look for uh, certain, uh, say, immigrants who are that is based on their market needs. So they, mm -hmm. I guess, they define what the market over there needs. So I guess we need X number of people in Calgary. Uh, I know Canada has taken a, a turn on the the oil and gas industry. So I guess now they're looking at other alternatives. For example, agriculture. Like uh, there is uh, agriculture in Canada. So. I guess people come over there. So would that be the right way of going about? Like, I, that's why America is such an anomaly in this entire process because I don't understand what America is looking for. America is just working on the H-1B program and that's all they do. Uh, I think that uh, these government attempts to decide who we need and who we don't need in particular categories, I think that's just a bunch of make work for government bureaucrats, really. I think basically they should just figure out how many folks they want a year and try to find high-skilled folks to come in. I don't think this is like a particular lesson of my current book, but I just think in general, if you're if you're going to go for a high-skilled immigration policy, that obviously will is likely to have longer-run benefits than, uh, say, a lower-skilled immigration policy. And um, 
making up these regional quotas about we need like 12,000 engineers over here. We need 12,000 oil researchers here. This is just the market can find a way to use new workers, right? The market knows what to do. And um, there may be some kind of infrastructure constraints. I'm open to the idea that basically the government is bad at building, uh, you know, sewage systems and electricity systems. So maybe you can't have too much migration too fast for those reasons. But in general, the invisible hand is good at finding a way to use new workers. And if you're bringing in high-skilled workers, if you're finding a way to invite them and welcome them and make them feel comfortable, uh, those folks are likely to have great national payoffs 10, 20, 30 years down the road, perhaps even as the second generation. All right. So I guess what so so an immigration policy of what you're talking about would be something that maybe a nation does not have. It identifies it and it wants those skilled people of that very industry to come over to that country and actually yeah. literally start it from scratch. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there are people doing this. Right. Um, but in general, uh, governments just aren't that great at figuring out which industries are going to be winners and which are going to be losers, right? So uh, these there are broad generalizations that work, but like picking, there's so many countries that have tried to like build a new Silicon Valley and there are a whole bunch of empty office buildings to show for it, right? Or they get repurposed into something else 10, 20, 30 years later after people realize that's not going to work out. Um, just having a lot of skilled people around, uh, if you have them around without a government plan, uh, the invisible hand will do a pretty good job figuring out how to use those uh, really valuable cognitive resources. Fair enough. Uh, so what would you tell people uh, who come back and say, uh, Garrett, you're placing too much faith in the invisible hand? Well, I mean, kind of show me where it really failed uh, to allocate really smart workers in a useful way on average, right? So there are always going to be people who fall through the cracks, but the rich countries, the countries with with a reasonably good governance, um, where with low communications costs, um, these are places where uh, where businesses are really hungry for talent. And not, not it's not that every single business is hungry for talent, but there's always a subset of businesses that are hungry for talent, and it's a lot like the dating pool. Uh, we know that it appears that uh, dating markets work better in the big city because you can just find more people to meet. And uh, a country with pretty good institutions where businesses can hire and fire, not quite at will, but somewhat easily, uh, this makes it possible for people to find good employment matches. And uh, I think this is a method that stood the test of time. Uh, just ask yourself, where do high-skilled migrants want to go to? They want to go to countries typically that do pretty well on these crazy right-wing libertarian economic freedom indexes, right? They want to move to places like, uh, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, rest in peace. They want to move to places like the U.S. or the U.K., places that have pretty free open labor markets. That's where people want to move. So they're voting with their feet and they have the stories to tell about. It. Now, is this fair enough to say that when it comes to migration, the primary driving motive is usually more often than not uh, economic? and everything else is secondary. And this is why a lot of the results that you see in the studies that you've mentioned in the book are because the value is barely the reason. It, I mean, at least I've barely come across somebody. It's not like it's zero, but I rarely come across an Indian who says, I went to America because I'm being very honest with you. Yeah. yeah. I Because, oh my God, this Indian culture. No, Indians on average actually like India and they like Indian culture, but 
I guess because India was a socialist hellhole, and these are my words, not Garrett's, uh, uh, a lot of Indians decided to move out. Now, what you see very interestingly in India is since 1990s, India has opened up its market. Um, a lot of Indians are getting opportunities over here. So you see a lot of times Indians coming back to India, first generation Indians, obviously the ones who are born there, they're just American kids and they just live their lives there. Yeah. But uh but a lot of Indians do come back. I'm not saying it has reduced. There are still, you know, India has 1.4 billion people. So you'll always have Indians going there too. But you do have the sentiment of Indians coming back. So would it be a safe bet that most migration is usually economic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, people uh, really love their homelands. They love being close to their family and their extended networks of friends. Uh, it seems to be a huge sacrifice for the typical person to leave their home country. Of course, there are exceptions like war, uh, persecution. Uh, that are, that'd be big, the big obvious exceptions. But in general, yeah, people love to be uh, in their homeland. It's a huge sacrifice. So uh, every person who's decided, you know, at, uh, you know, we all know that on some level, all of our ancestors are migrants, right? Um, so for our ancestors to leave uh, Africa and move to Eurasia, for people to move from the, say, the Caucasus region uh, to, to India or to Europe, these were huge changes, huge choices people made, and they were reluctant to do it because they're like, why do I want to leave the place that I know? Um, and so, yeah, in the modern world, that's absolutely happening. And one sign that people feel connected to their home countries is that remittances are so huge. Um, people who migrate to the U.S. often send money back to their family back home. And that's a sign that they have these strong emotional ties and they really want to make use of American productivity in order to help their loved ones uh, back in the home country. Now, Another bit in your book that I found very interesting was uh, you talk about um, the Morgan Kelly uh, from uh, the University mm -hmm. College Dublin uh, about a specific paper uh, where I want to read this bit because I found this very interesting that yeah. the and I'm quoting your book says that there aren't as many countries in the world as you think there are. Why? Because most countries are near clones of their neighbors. So if you see over 100 countries that have a pretty strong relationship between an ancient deep root score and modern prosperity, ask yourself if you would be much less impressed if it were just a handful of countries with such a relationship. What, what exactly is this study talking about? Yeah, so this is uh, Morgan Kelly is drawing on this great insight of geography, which is one of these uh, uh, iron laws in geography, which is that things are a lot like the things that they're close to. And uh, that's absolutely true, right? Um, so in math terms, we call that spatial autocorrelation. Uh, so it, it means that you'll, if, uh, if there are a lot of geographic patterns that are, uh, distributed that are similar to things nearby, like if there's a, if there's a river in my town, there's prop, there's a more above average chance that there's a river in the town, one town over, right? Why? Because rivers have to go from one place to the next. If there's, if I'm living in a mountain town, the people one town over, pretty good chance they're living in a mountain town too. So geographic features are, are um, similar from place to place, right? Uh, when you're moving, say, 1, 2, 10, 20, even 100 miles. So this means that those kind of features are uh, similar to their neighbors. So that's similarly true with language, right? So you're pretty likely to be speaking the language of people who are 50 or 100 miles away from you. And it may just be purely a coincidence that the people living in the mountains, that two groups of people who are living in the mountains are also speaking the same language. It might just be that like people are just sort of a lot like the things that are they're close to. 
So there could be a reason why mountain people all speak the same language, or it could just be a coincidence. So we're going to see what Morgan Kelly reminds us is this law of geography that when um, things are a lot like the things that they're close to, that multiple measures like, say, language and geography could be, look correlated, even though it's just a coincidence. And so, um, you know, as I point out in the book, that from a statistical perspective, Homer Simpson is right. And Canada really is just America Jr., right? From the perspective of the entire planet, not when you're worrying about the tiny little differences between U.S. and Canada, which we can talk about. When you look at the perspective of the entire planet, the U.S. and Canada look very similar, right? Similar languages, similar degrees of economic freedom, similar degrees of income per capita, similar this, similar that. You can just keep going down the line. Clothing styles, temperature, right? And... So that means that when people look for, you'll find a lot more coincidences if you mistakenly think there are 200 independent countries in the world rather than just 10 countries in the world with a few clones. So it means you have to just be a little bit more skeptical of using typical statistical significance tests that statisticians like to use. Uh, that's sort of one quick lesson to learn from it. There's more fancy statistical lessons you can draw from it. Uh, but yeah, we should be thinking through the question of whether we'd be impressed by any cross-country comparison, not just about migration, but about the link between, say, savings and prosperity or economic freedom and prosperity, right? Uh, maybe these are just coincidences driven by the fact that there's only like 10 or 12 countries in the world and a bunch of clones. Hmm. Or, or as uh, I remember once uh, one of my family members uh, <laughs> told my wife, who is a Canadian, the Canadians are just confused Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm kidding, Canadians. Common joke, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Canadians now, let's, great let's, things, so. yes, yes, they have. Uh, we like them. Uh, so, now I want to focus uh, because uh, I, I have to spend some time. You, you actually dedicated a chapter or two to China and Chinese immigration. One chapter, let us spend yeah. some time. Uh, uh, let us spend some time over here that what made you study the Chinese immigration pattern in so much detail? Partly because one of the common critiques of my, of uh, this migration research is that, well, the only reason that statistically looks like uh, migration affects the wealth of nations and that is, is just because Europeans came and invaded the new world. So it's the military conquest of one country by another that can change institutions. But when people peacefully migrate, my critics say, uh, that will have no effect on institutions. So that's that's a story that I often hear, that peaceful migration will not lead to a culture transplant. It will lead to full assimilation instead. Only violent migration leads to a culture transplant. This is one version of the critique I hear. And, you know, uh, I have, I've known quite a few uh, economists, of course, uh, who've have Chinese backgrounds. I've done some consulting with a colleague of mine uh, who's Filipino in the Philippines. That gave me some opportunity to learn a little bit about Southeast Asia. Lived at uh, GMU Korea, taught at my George Mason University's Korea campus for a while. That gave me some chances to learn a little about East and Southeast Asia up close. And if there's one thing one learns when you're looking across Southeast Asia is that these uh, market dominant minorities, Chinese market dominant minorities have a substantial economic uh, impact for the good, I believe across Southeast Asia, right? In countries where uh, people of Chinese background are a majority uh, the, uh, as migrants, those countries tend to be quite 
laissez-faire. They tend to be pro-market. They tend to be prosperous. These are the three big ones, of course, are Taiwan, Hong Kong, rest in peace, and uh, Singapore, right? Macau might get a sort of honorary mention there. Um, and so, but even in countries where uh, people of Chinese background are a minority, if they're a substantial part of the minority, those countries still tend to be quite richer than average, right? Uh, uh, Malaysia would be the key example there. And so just knowing the history of South, the Southeast, of the Chinese diaspora across Southeast Asia taught me, um, you know, it pointed to a lot of stylized facts that refuted, it contradicted this theory that peaceful migration can never have an effect on a country. In fact, it can often have a benefit, a, a contribution for the good. Um, there are a lot of Chinese billionaires across Southeast Asia. We hear these are billionaires of Chinese ancestry across Southeast Asia. Uh, they get show, they show up a lot in these global billionaire reports and whatnot. Um, and in general, they're, those folks are building productive enterprises that are helping a lot of people in their country, helping to create fairly widely shared prosperity that helps everyone. Having a lot of billionaires in your country is pretty good news. Having a lot of productive um, folks in your country is really great news. And I tend to think that what's happening with Chinese migration is that uh, Chinese migration across Southeast Asia is basically transplanting the culture of Ming Dynasty excellence uh, that was lost for a while during the horrors of the late Qing Dynasty and during the horrors of the 20th century, most especially uh, Mao's communist uh, regime. So the Chinese, the Chinese diaspora is basically building the capitalist road that Mao feared would be built. That's that's really interesting that uh, they, they tend to have a disproportionate impact. I would actually like to see a, a study about the Indian di diaspora, too. I mean, uh, it's not there in the book, but I'm definitely I'm going to try. And that would look have been up a great chapter, too. You're right. That absolutely would have been great. Right. This it's well known. There would have shown up. Uh, one would have definitely be talking about the Gulf states. Right. And mm -hmm. there it's an influence that goes back centuries. Right. Mm -hmm. And similarly across Southeast Asia. So we're going to the southwest of India and the southeast of India for the, the areas that I know most about. And there the Indian diaspora has had a huge effect, you know, of course, down the uh, down the East African coast as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it would be really interesting to study because Indians have migrated all over the world. So before we wrap it up, I, I just wanted to take a few questions from the live viewers too. So sure. here's a few. So someone has asked, does ease of becoming citizens affect the speed to assimilate? I, I guess it has to, right? Uh, the most important uh, bifurcation here, the two, two tranches of migration are guest workers on the one hand and uh, say uh, permanent citizens on the other hand, right? Guest workers are going to have very little incentive to, to assimilate on cultural values. Some countries can pull off credible guest worker programs. Uh, famously, Singapore does. Um, and there, one can criticize uh, the strength, the weaknesses of, the, of, say, Singapore's guest worker program. But there are many people choosing to sign up for that repeatedly. They go for a couple of years, come back to go back to their home country, go for a couple of years, come back to their home country. But since they know they're not going to be legally allowed to plant roots, I would expect them to assimilate much less. Yeah, because um, uh, the next follow-up was does faster citizenship increase the likelihood then of assimilation? Because Indians typically take the longest to become citizens in the U.S. And I, and again, anecdotally, I can vouch for that because everybody I knew was clinging on to that Indian passport and having a green card for the longest time, including my own immediate family. And uh, eventually they gave up just because, you know, 
I think the American passport just eases a few things. Like if I want to travel to Europe and other parts of the world, you don't need the visa because on the Indian passport, you just need too many visas. And that's when people like one of my closest friends from Mumbai, he moved to America and he was clinging on to uh, the the Indian passport forever. And then he finally gave up. It's like, I, I know too many cases. So is there something of that sort that uh, the faster you, I guess if America again, or any nation says, again, I always use the Canadian example is because Canada does tend to give their passport faster. But then I don't see that assimilation happening in Canada because I don't know what the Canadian essence is because in America at the cultural level, I know there is an essence. I know what American exceptionalism is. I know what America stands for. Like uh, America and Canada are very different. Like America is like a melting pot, but Canada is not like a melting pot. I, I honestly don't know what Canadian is. Okay. Well, I don't actually know the answer to this question. It seems totally plausible that the expectation of being given full citizenship basically makes people sort of, you know, plant their feet fully in their new country rather than just keeping a foot in each place. Um, but, but personally, my hunch is that's going to matter on questions like, say, uh, language, on questions of property ownership, maybe uh, maybe some cuisine questions, right? But I think in terms of the values, just being, it, this is a case where being in the air, the peer effects are going to swamp things. And I don't think that, this is just, again, just a hunch, um, that I, don't, I doubt that being... Uh, not having decided whether you're going to stay in America influences sort of how much of the social media, how much of the CNN headlines, how much of the New York Times headlines you're picking up. Um, the one question I would ask you is, uh, do Canadian, do um, Indian Canadians tend to vote toward the left uh, just as uh, Indian Americans tend to? So Indian Canadians, how are they politically different in partisanship than uh, Indian Americans from your perspective? By default, most Indians vote left. <laughs> okay. So it's not like there's... So that would be the thing that one measure I'd want to look at, right? Not the only one. But you want to check and see, like, well, are they equally split between the parties? If they were equally split between the parties, you'd say, like, well, they've assimilated. Yeah, they're just sort of uh, split, divided across the parties, just like uh, other Canadians. I think the assimilation of Indians is slowly happening because, in my opinion, and... Because I do study political trends, it's just part of my hobby. I've been involved in socio-political issues for a good decade plus, and I tend to follow North American politics too. Um, uh, if if I was to guess, I think the 50-50 or 65-35, 60-40 split between Indian Canadians and Indian origin Americans between the two parties or in the case of Canada, I think it will be the conservatives and the liberals, not the NDP. I don't think so. And the NDP will garner many Indian votes. They might garner the the, the vote of a specific Indian community being the Sikh community as Jagmeet Singh is, uh, is of Indian origin and is a Sikh. But beyond that, I see the Indians moving to the conservative party of Canada much faster then uh, the Indians moving to the Republican Party in in uh, in America yeah. again because of the fundamental difference between how the Canadian conservatives are compared to the American conservatives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the that so do you think Indian so Indian conservatives? Excuse me. Um, do Canadian conservatives uh, seem more welcoming toward migrants than American conservatives yeah. do? Yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah. I just wanted to get you to say that out loud. That's great. So that's good yeah. for the audience yeah. to hear that. So. Yeah, yeah. Because if you remember, even under the Harper regime or historically in Canada, the most pro-immigration 
outfit in Canadian politics is usually the Canadian Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. And mo- most people don't know this, that, you know, especially like politics in Quebec is very complex. Like mm-hmm. it is, uh, there are sections inside the Quebecois left that is very anti-immigration. Mm-hmm. Most people don't realize that. Uh, and I guess the, it, so I, I see the probabilities of that move to the Conservative Party in the Indian community being much faster in Canada. Like in, in the United Kingdom, it's happened. The Indian community now has gone, a huge chunk of the Indian community has gone mm-hmm. to the Tories. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it takes time. But in, in the United Kingdom, you are right. There, there are now almost fourth generation Indians. While mm-hmm. in America and Canada, they're second generation and very few third generation in that sense. So uh, before we wrap it up now, if, if, if let's say a hypothetical, the American government uh, calls you, this will be my last question. All right. Uh, Because the H1B policy in America is, is like, you know, okay, today you get it. Okay. Tomorrow you get it. It it, it is. And H1B is a very serious question that upset that Indians obsess about. That's why I'm asking you this question. So, so if somebody was to, from the American government, let's say it doesn't matter the Biden administration or whatever administration comes after that says, get it. Tell us how do we fix our H1B policy based on your experience of immigration and how do we design the next immigration policies of America? What would you give them as hardcore recommendations? Yeah. So let me, uh, so I have worked in politics a little bit, so let me try to give you something that I think might work politically rather than being my utopian dream. Um, (laughs) Uh, some of the some of the pushback on H-1B uh, issues in America is that people allege, I don't know how much truth, how true this is, that a lot of the H-1B folks really aren't that skilled, skilled, but not that skilled. So why not buy off the political opposition to that issue by substantially raising the educational requirements for H-1Bs, but then dramatically expanding the number of people who are entered into it and give it a clearer, fast track to green card status, Right. So basically buy off the opposition by raising the skill level, use that as a way to increase the quantity of people. I think there'll be far less, it's harder to get through up to oppose that story and fast track folks to green card status so they can make a choice if they want to be United States citizens. Yeah, it's, it's it's a little bit of a classic political compromise, so... Yeah, that's interesting because I personally have never understood American immigration. I guess yeah, actually what you're recommending is is for the benefit of the United States of America. And and what most people unfortunately don't tend to realize is that a good immigration policy is something that should benefit that nation. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, if a nation is not benefiting, what's the point of a good immigration policy? Now, uh, it's almost as if India's immigration policy has to be something that should benefit America. Why should it benefit America? It should benefit India primarily. That That's the whole point. But um, uh, again, Garrett, before we wrap things up for the day, uh, is there any new project that you're working on that you want to talk to us about or want to let us know about? No, I'm excited to basically kind of rest on my laurels of the Singapore trilogy. That's the three books, Hive Mind on IQ. Uh, 10% less democracy on how democracy is just a little bit overrated and uh, the culture transplant, my last one. So looking forward to finding a new project in 2023 and uh, you know, economics is a great way to explore the world. And I invite others to take that approach to seeing the world. Awesome. Garrett, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I, I, I actually had a great time reading all three of your books. Thank I, you so much uh, for reading all three of them. I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, I, and I and I wrote them, uh, you know, read them uh, one after the other, and I, I had a great time. And looking forward to uh, you know speaking with you again in the future and reading uh, your 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 books again. Glad to come back. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's podcast up once again in the description of the podcast. Doesn't matter if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on the audio platforms, Spotify, iTunes, wherever. I have left a link to buy Garrett's books. You can go click the link in the description and you can follow Garrett on Twitter too. Uh, I've also left a link to his website. You can go and check out his social media, uh, social media profile too. As far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Subscribe to the channel, like the podcast, give your ratings on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you do, or become a member on Fanmo, YouTube, Patreon. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.